Our passage this New Year's Eve day comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're looking at verses 11 through 21. It's on page 966 in your pew Bible, or it's printed right there in your bulletin for you to follow along. You know, the church in Corinth was very immature. They fought and, and squabbled and bragged about all sorts of shameful things. But Paul loved this church, and he suffered and sacrificed so that they would mature in their walk with Christ. Now, I'm not suggesting that our church is in the same sorry state as this ancient church, but we can learn from Paul's words this morning. I believe this passage will help us live in the new year with new life and a new calling that God gives us in Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his way, if we want to know his will, then we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word before us, um, words that, that impress upon us your unfailing love towards us, your reconciling action, not just with people, but this entire universe that you have made, but that has fallen and in need of your restoration. May our hearts and minds be restored as we ponder these words. May your spirit fill us so that this would not be a vain attempt of, of men and women to comprehend your word, but may it truly be a work of you in our lives this morning, we pray. Amen. New things become old things, don't they? We celebrated Christmas this past week, and millions of kids, young and old, opened brand new presents and Things they marked on their list as desperately needing. Many kids got new iPhones they couldn't live without, or new clothes, or a, a new bicycle. 
And how many adults watched all those car commercials around the holiday times and decided to gift themselves a new car this Christmas? Oh, to get new things. But the the problem is new things become old things. After a few months of driving that car, guess what? You, You see the newer model that comes out, and you just have to have the newer model to replace it. Or those fashionable clothes uh, soon become out of fashion, and we're crying for new ones. In our passage, in this amazing verse, verse 17, look at that. Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, as in died off. Behold, the new has come. The gospel brings a new life in Christ to you and to me. But isn't it true? Christians can often live as if the gospel is old news, where once we were perhaps on fire, as it is said, uh, we've come to slowly burn down and lose our flame. And so for many Christians, this life can become drudgery or filled with apathy. Drudgery in that our understanding of what it means to be a Christian is about how well we perform our moral duties. And since we cannot perform our moral duties perfectly, the Christian life can become tedious and joyless. It can become drudgery. Or, or we think, you know what, I can never get this Christian life right. So what's the point? And apathy sets in. So where are you today? Apathy or drudgery? I can tell you where I'm at. I'm kind of a combination of both. (laughs) So how do we move from apathy and drudgery to joy and purposefulness in our lives? Paul here helps us to understand. He is writing as one who lives with great joy and purpose in his Christian life. And so my hope this morning is that Paul's words will help us in the new year and that he would help us by informing us in two areas, our new life in Christ and our new calling in Christ. So the gospel gives you a new life and a new calling. And it gives us uh, this new life and this new calling. When it's properly understood, it gives us a great sense of joy and purposefulness in how we live out our lives. We're going to look at those two areas. First, the new life. And here's the big idea I want you to wrap your heads around about the new life that you have in Christ. And that's this. Joy and purposefulness in life are not a byproduct of one's sense of duty or desire to be a better Christian. What is it? It's the result of a heightened experience of God's love for you. What I've come to recognize in my own life is this. Whenever I lose sight of God's love for me, I slip into apathy or drudgery. But when my eyes are illuminated to God's love for me, joy and purpose abound. God's love, what we must see, is absolutely astounding. We should never be at reason or loss for joy or purpose in our lives. In our passage, Paul magnifies God's love before our eyes to this church in Corinth. And the question we should ask is, how is it that Paul, who serves Christ with such joy and purpose, how is it that he lives this way? He's Paul, the one who's been shipwrecked so many times and, and, and who's been ridiculed and mocked and in prison. How is it that Paul has joy and contentment in all of his circumstances? And how are you and I to live with joy and purpose instead of apathy and drudgery? Look at verse 14. It's the key. For the love of Christ 
controls us. When Paul thinks of God or religion or what it means to live the Christian life, what is it that pops to the front of his brain? Well, it's not a long list of commands to do. It's not how much he's messed up in the past. It's not how difficult life has been lately. The thing that dominates Paul is what? It's the love of Christ. Paul is absorbed by God's love for him. Now, commentators debate this love of Christ. Is it Christ's love for Paul, or is it Paul's love for Christ? I think it's purposely ambiguous. I think it's both. Paul delights so much in Christ's love for him that he responds with abundant love for Christ, and his life reflects that love. Paul says that the love of Christ controls us. Now, the Greek word for control means to, to keep together, to confine, to restrain. Now, some will say, you know, true love, it shouldn't restrain or control you. To which I say, you've never been in love, right? My love for my family controls me. It patterns my thoughts and my goals and my actions. And so the more you love someone, the more, not the less, love controls you. Makes sense, right? The Apostle Paul behaves as he does, not out of fear or out of guilt or shame, but because of the love of Jesus the Christ or the Messiah of God. One scholar, N.T. Wright, says this. Listen, it's kind of a long, but follow along. The Messiah's love gives me new energy. It urges me on. It impels me forward. That's what all love does. It constrains us, forces us to do things. And the love of the Messiah is what the gospel is all about. Listen, the gospel is not a mechanism for getting people saved. It is the announcement of a love that has changed the world, a love that therefore takes the people who find themselves loved like this and sends them off to live and work in a totally new way. He goes on to say the energy to get up and go on as a Christian, as one who works for the gospel, therefore, comes not from a cold sense of duty, not from fear of being punished if you don't do your bit, but from the warm-hearted response of love to the love that has reached out, reached down, and reached you. Our new life in Christ is joyful and purposeful as we respond to God's love. And how is it that God demonstrates his love? Look at verse, the rest of verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. You know, this last month I rewatched the Band of Brothers miniseries, which chronicles the easy company during World War II as they stormed into Germany. You know, in so many of those battle scenes, you saw men risking their own lives to come to the aid or rescue of a brother in arms. Sometimes soldiers even gave their own lives to save another. What love, what sacrifice. How much more so the love of Christ. Christ sacrificed himself so that all who trust in him would receive new life in him. And verse 21 makes it clear And for our sake, he, that's God the Father, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If we're honest, we must realize that that 
we cannot overlook our sin. God does not overlook our sin. Our sin separates us from God. And in fact, it imprisons us, prevents us from even desiring God's mercy. But God, because his very being just overflows with love, devised a plan by which his love may come to undeserving people like you and me. God sent his son in our place. He took our sin on him. He who has never sinned took our sin and he, what? He gives us his righteousness. What a beautiful exchange. That's how much God loves you. That is what Paul says controls us. Paul is saying to this church that is struggling to live a joyful, productive life, and he says, meditate upon God's love for you. See how much he has loved you. Soak it in that his love may what? Begin to take control of your life. Paul knows that when we meditate on the love of Christ, it begins to course through our veins and it begins to, to animate us in our daily lives. Paul helps us in another area. You know, Paul helps us to see that the love of Christ isn't some esoteric concept, you know, something that that is distant and and just something that you just try to wrap your your head around. It isn't just a proposition to be intellectualized. It's not a cold theory that you just kind of check off a box. Well, yes, I guess there must be a God, and I I guess he must be loving. That's nice. No, the love of Christ is it's imminent, it's tangible, it's personal, it's experiential. Think about it. When you love someone, you don't keep them at a distance. You what? You draw them near. And the more you love someone, the closer you want them to you. How much more so God, whose love for us is infinitely more than what we can even comprehend in our own minds. Out of his love for us, he draws us near to him. It's a relational love. It's not just a conceptual thing. It's something that you and I can experience. Now, if you've been around Grace Church for a while, every now and then I'll bring up this point as it arises in our text. It's called the doctrine of union with Christ. Union with Christ, if you're taking notes. All throughout the New Testament, we read words like in Christ or with Christ or in him or with him. In our passage in verse 17 says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Verse 21, in him we might become the righteousness of God. As Paul wrote the Colossians, listen, he said, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You know, I keep going back to this illustration, but it's just, I think, the most effective one to, to help us conceptualize this doctrine. You know, imagine this book is Christ. Imagine this bookmark is you. If I place this bookmark into this book, wherever the book goes, so goes the bookmark, right? Same thing for the, for the Christian. God does not save you from a distance. In love, he drew you near so near that he placed your life in Christ's very life. You were there when Christ lived the perfect life on your behalf as he walked upon this earth. You were there in him as he died on the cross for your sins. And you are in him now as he's risen from the grave and is seated in the heavenly realms. Paul writes this to the Ephesian church. He says, God has, listen, raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. 
My friends, in this new year, as you're reading through your Bibles in the New Testament, I want you to be on the lookout for those phrases that point to our union with Christ. But for today, let, today, let the truth sink in. See how much God loves you, how he brings you near. He places you in Christ. Your life is now hidden in him. That is how intimate God's love is towards you. And so here's the big idea we need to soak in. If you experience apathy or drudgery in your Christian walk, the divine solution isn't to make big, bold commitments uh, in the new year to be a better Christian, nor is it to commit just to read the Bible more or to pray more. And these are all good things, right? But if your motivation for doing these things is based on the belief that, well, that's what good Christians do, so I have to do them, well, if that's your motivation, then it's only going to do what? Lead to more drudgery and, and apathy. So I hope you see that the primary motivating force in the Christian life is what Paul says here. The love of Christ controls us. And so as we enter the new year, yes, let's commit to a daily Bible reading plan where we let God's word fertilize our very lives. Yes, come up with a plan for being more fruitful in your prayer life. Yes, commit to zealously serving on one of our grace teams here at the church. But let us all begin with the goal of experiencing more of Christ's love for us. Let us start by meditating upon the love of Christ, what he has done and what he continues to do for us. Take time to meditate on this and it will change you. Christ's love for you and your love for Christ will begin to control you in the best of ways which leads us to our second and final point, the new calling. Our new calling is to be ambassadors for Christ. Because of the love of Christ now controls us, we now wish to live that out. You know, years ago, John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd starred in a comedy called The Blues Brothers. Some of you remember that, right? And throughout this uh, movie, Dan Aykroyd's character kept saying, we're on a mission from God. Their lives, their circumstances, their hopes, their fears, everything was oriented around this one sustaining, pulling thought, we're on a mission from God. And their mission? To get the old band back together again. (laughs) Well, it goes without saying, the mission for our new lives in Christ is far more spectacular and purposeful than getting the old band back together. As good as that is, we have a divine calling. Verse 20, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Listen, God making his appeal through us. This amazes me every time I think of it. God's plan for the world to know him, to experience his redeeming love and his mercy and his grace is that people like you and me would be his ambassadors. I mean, broken, needy people, people who ourselves are in such need of God's ongoing grace and mercy. We are God's plan for the world hearing about his redeeming love. It's humbling. Paul writes, listen, God is making his appeal through us. Staggering. What a calling. 
Christian, this is your calling. God making appeal through us. We're ambassadors. Now, what's an ambassador? An ambassador lives in another country other than his own homeland. He lives in that other country, but he doesn't represent his own interests. He represents the interests of his, of his home company, country. He doesn't do anything that would infringe upon the best interests of his home government. Now, Paul's analogy is obvious, right? We probably don't need to explain it much, but, but here we go. Christian, there is no higher calling, there's no grander purpose for you to live under than being an ambassador for Christ. You and I get to proclaim God's redeeming love to a people, to a world that that is broken and hurting and needy and is in great need of compassion and mercy and grace. We get to point people to the only one who can truly satisfy their souls. We get to be instruments in the hand of God whereby our family members, our co-workers, our fellow students get to hear about, about what God has done for them. As Robert Murray McShane wrote, the Christian is a person who makes it easy for others to believe in God. Now, a couple quick things. What does this practically look like? One, it means that people will most likely misunderstand you from time to time. I mean, you look at verses 11 to 13, Paul is addressing a problem that's going on in, in Corinth. See, The people in that ancient Greek city preferred great orators, people who came with titillating words that would just cause you to go, wow, that guy is so erudite, and gosh, he is so smart, and he's tall and handsome too. They preferred messages that were easy to swallow. Give us the wisdom of Plato or the or the ethics of Aristotle. We don't want to hear of a Savior who's dead on a cross. That just sounds foolish to us. And so in verse 13, Paul says, if we appear to be out of our minds, uh, besides ourselves, guess what? We're we're serving God. It can look that way. It can look like you're out of your mind when you're living a life for Christ. And he says, if we appear in our right mind, guess what? We're serving you. It's working. So know this. As you serve Christ, some will think you are out of your mind. See, when you live with such an extreme love and a passion, Um, for God, and love for your neighbor, there will be plenty of people who think you're a bit messed up, or they'll say, well, he's a religious, just a little too religious for my liking. When I told my unbelieving mother that I was going to sell my computer business and go into youth ministry full-time, she thought I was whacked out. And she still does. So my friends, as you live as ambassadors for Christ, some people will roll their eyes at you. But keep on serving Christ. Continue to try to persuade others. Also, being an ambassador for Christ means that we must see things differently. Look at verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Now, when Paul speaks of according to the flesh, he doesn't mean the physical body. He means the, fl- the flesh as in that, that old you, that old you that was corrupted by a sin nature, that old you that, that couldn't help but just follow selfish patterns and, and, and lustful desires. It refers to how we used to look at the world from a purely secular standpoint, as if there really is no God who's working out his good plan as if there really is no such thing as human beings who are trapped in the hopelessness of sin. Paul says we used to regard Christ according to the flesh. That is, you know what, Jesus is just a good storyteller. He's a, he's a moral teacher. 
Uh, he's a failure because, look, he ended up dying on a cross. Poor Jesus. You know, I used to think that way about him. How about you? That's what Paul is saying here. That's, that's looking at Jesus according to the flesh. Paul is saying that ambassadors for Christ no longer view other people this way. That classmate at school who is such a snob, well, now you love her. Why? Because you're no longer seeing her according to the flesh. You see her as a human being made in God's image, who's suffering through brokenness, who is, who is far from God. And you love her as God would love her. And you sacrifice for her. You build a bridge into her life so that you can bring the love of Christ into her life so that she can become a new creation in Christ Jesus. Let me ask you, consider all the people in your life, bosses, teachers, neighbors, store clerks, random strangers driving around like jerks. They're out there. But how do you view them? According to the flesh or according to whom they can become as a new creation in Christ? Are you convicted for how easy it is for you to see the flaws in others and then turn from them? Do you tend to judge first and then ask questions? Or do you see how the old has passed away for you and now the new has come? Do you savor the fact that God is reconciling this whole world back to himself and that he's called you to this important work on behalf of the world that you live in? You know, I know there's a lot of good purposes for which we can live here on earth. When, when our kids are little, we ask them, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And boy, that changes over time, doesn't it? What's the occupation to which you will be devoted and it's true, we can find great fulfillment in our work. Doctors can bring physical healing. Social workers can bring psychological healing. Architects and laborers, tradesmen can, can create homes where people can dwell in, in security and offer hospitality. And so what I hope you see is that being an ambassador for Christ doesn't mean that you have to give up your occupation. No, we get to work as ambassadors for Christ in our occupations. When that fellow student at school is depressed, you get to point him to the joy that can be his in Christ. When a colleague is being mistreated by a boss, you can help her to forgive her boss as Christ Jesus has forgiven her. What a calling to be an ambassador for Christ. There is nothing more purposeful that you can have in your life than this calling. So where are you here? Where are you this morning? You think Christians are out of their minds? Sometimes we are. But my hope is that you see more clearly the love of God. It's a love that will not overlook your sin, but it's a love that draws you near so that your sin may be placed on Christ, so that Christ's very beautiful righteousness can be placed on you and credited to your account. I implore you to be reconciled to God. Those are Paul's words to any in Corinth who still weren't reconciled to God. And I, I offer those words to you here today. But most of us here are Christians. May we see this morning how the Christian life is to be lived. Our lives are to be lived as a response to God's amazing love towards us 
as ambassadors for Christ. And so if you sense that your Christian life is becoming characterized by drudgery or apathy, meditate upon the love of Christ, even as we come forward for the Lord's Supper and preach the gospel to yourselves daily. See your continual need for a Savior who loves you and respond with continued love for Christ. And may your gratitude overflow in your life. And may you become alive in Christ. That's our motto here at Grace Church, in case you didn't know. Alive in Christ. May you come alive in Christ to live as his ambassador in this world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this good news for us to enter into this new year. We have new life in Christ Jesus. Our, our life is hidden with Christ. We are new creatures. The old has passed away. The new has truly come. Help us to ponder more your love towards us. It's not a distant love. It's a love that draws near. And may we draw near in love. May our lives be animated by your love as it courses through our veins. May we live with great joy and purpose. And may we be ambassadors for you, we pray. Amen.